you go into your shower feeling tired. But as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later, because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you. Welcome to the NFL Legends Podcast, an NFL podcast for the players, by the players. Here is your host, 14-year NFL veteran and Hall of Famer, Aeneas Williams. Hello, and welcome to the NFL Legends Podcast. I am Aeneas Williams. As a part of our Storyteller series, we have the story of Falcons legend Brian Banks. It is a story of perseverance and courage, one that will be showcased in an upcoming feature film. Let's listen in. How you doing? My name is Brian Banks. I am a Southern California native, born and raised in Long Beach, California. I'm 33 years old. Some time ago at the age of 16, um, my life took a, a uh, crazy turn that I didn't expect, my family didn't expect, uh, friends and community didn't expect. I think my story is a very unique story, but also uh, not so unique in the, in the fact that it, it only happened to me. It's happened to many other people. At the age of 16, I was 11th in the nation, uh, linebacker for Long Beach Poly High School. On my way to USC on a full scholarship, I only needed one more year left of high school. I remember that year was, uh, going into my senior year was the biggest year for me in sports. We were preparing our, our uh, preseason to play against uh, Concord de La Salle. It was a rematch. Uh, the year before they beat us, they had uh, Maurice Jones Drew and a, and a hell of a team behind us. And this year we were coming back for, uh, for a rematch and I was to lead our, our team out as a defensive leader, team leader. One day during uh, summer school, some hours before practice, I went to a known makeout spot with a girl that I've known since middle school. She and I went to this secluded area that everyone knows is a, a makeout spot on campus, and we kissed and we made out. Uh, we didn't have sex. At the end of the day, uh, before I could make it to, uh, to football practice, I was being arrested and accused of kidnapping and rape. I was arrested from home. I was taken to a hospital where they performed all kinds of tests on me and DNA tests. I was told throughout this entire ordeal that everything would be figured out, that they just needed to talk to, you know, certain few people and get it all figured out. But uh, time passed, time passed, time passed. The next thing you know, I saw myself in a juvenile hall cell uh, in uh, San Pedro, California. And I was told, maybe you'll be here for a day or two. They just need to get you in front of a judge and they'll figure this out. You'll be okay. And after a couple of days, I appeared in front of a judge and the judge denied bail, uh, actually uh, denied me uh, being released on my own recognizance, placed a bill on my head of about 1.15 million. Um, I was charged with kidnapping. I was charged with uh, multiple counts of rape and we had no way to post bond. Uh, my mom uh, didn't have 10% <laughs> of $1.15 million. My mom would later go on to sell her house and sell her car to afford the attorney that would represent me in this situation. So after that first court date and the judge denying me being released from my OR, 
I was left behind bars to figure out this case, uh, time started to pass. And the next thing you know, uh, the, the football season started. The next thing you know, I was expelled from school. The next thing you know, all the colleges and recruiters turned their back on the potential of recruiting me. I mean, I was being recruited by every D1 and D2 schools you can think of. I began to stress. You know, I had the, the, the nightmares, the, the daydreams, and uh, the frustration and all the negative emotions you could think of, I had it. Those first few days of incarceration, I lost 14 pounds behind bars. I wasn't eating, I wasn't coming out of my cell, I wasn't interacting with anybody else. And as I sat there, things progressively got worse. Time began to slow down. Me being behind bars turned into an everyday thing versus a one-day thing or a couple-day thing. So one day, my, my cell door opened up and this man walks in. He, I can tell, obviously, if he wasn't one of the correctional officers at the juvenile hall, he was dressed in plain clothes, older black gentleman with you know reading glasses. And he walks in, back straight and tall, and he surveys the small cell that I was in. And as he walks in, he has a seat. So I'm sitting here on my bunk, and as he sits next to me and he sizes me up and down, he looks at me and he says, I'm, I don't know what it is you're going through, but you gotta let it go. And I thought to myself, how could I possibly let go of what I'm going through? I'm currently in the midst of it all. And here is this man that I've never met before telling me, you gotta let it go. I didn't know what he meant by let it go. But for some reason, there was something in me that kind of understood what he meant. I just didn't know how to let it go. And so this man, his name is Mr. Johnson. He, he was uh, a teacher at the juvenile hall. Uh, and I started taking classes in his program. Um, but as, uh, you know, he, it's, to this day, I can't tell you what, ed, what, what uh, subject he taught. Uh, because when you'd walk into his classroom, his focus was um, stepping outside the box, uh, discovering who the real you is, that journey towards enlightenment and spiritual awakening. All things that I had never discussed, talked about, heard about, you know, when you're going through... K through 12, these are discussions that you just don't have in school. And as I would come into his class on a day-to-day -day basis, this man would challenge me in ways that I had never been challenged before. I remember one of the first questions that he asked me was, who are you? And I looked at him, I said, well, I know who I am, I'm Brian Banks. And he said, well, don't ask your name. So let me ask you again, who are you? And I said, well, I'm a young black man that's in jail for something that he didn't do. And he said, well, uh, that's your current state on this earth, and this is just a skin suit in order for your spirit to survive. So let me ask you again, if you're not your body and you're not your current state, who are you? And I had no words. And he said, let's start there. As time passed and I continued to work with him, things progressively got worse for me in my case. Uh, more charges were filed. I was uh, later tried as an adult. They said that the case was so serious and, and so severe, the case was too severe for juvenile court and I was to be tried as an adult. So I went from facing minor camp time to 41 years to life in prison. So time continued to pass and pass and here I was almost a year into my incarceration when uh, I was to go into court uh, for this particular court date to select a jury and go to trial. And before I could walk into this courtroom, uh, my lawyer pulled me into an interview room at the courthouse. And as I waited inside this small box with a glass that separated me from the free world, um, in she walks with this smile on her face and excitement within her, 
her expression, and, and it kind of got me excited for a while. I was like, what's going on? What's the good news? She walks in, she sits down, she says, I just came up with this amazing deal with the district attorney's office. Brian, you have to take this deal. She says, if you plead no contest, which is to say that I'm not guilty nor innocent, I'm just choosing not to fight the case and whatever the judge sees fit as my punishment, I'll accept it. If you plead no contest to one count of rape, they will drop all of your other charges. You would undergo what's called a 90-day observation, uh, which is 90 days uh, at a men's correctional facility, prison, and during your 90 days in prison, you'll be interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor to determine on a ladder system whether you were to receive felony probation, three years in prison, or six years in prison. She looked at me in my eyes through that glass, and she said, Brian, I guarantee you and I promise you that you will get probation. I promise you that. If for some reason things went horribly wrong and you were to receive some prison time, you wouldn't get any more than a three-year sentence. That means you'll have about 18 more months to serve. You'll still be young. You can get out and go play football and move on with your life. But Brian, if you don't take this deal, you're going to walk into that courtroom and you're risking your entire life in prison. I'm 17 years old as this is being presented to me. And I was left with the decision to make. Do I walk into this courtroom and, and risk my entire life in prison for something I didn't do by going to trial? Or do I walk into this courtroom and take a deal for a crime I didn't commit? First thing I said was, can I talk to my mom? Because I had always talked to mom about these decisions. Well, on this occasion, my attorney said no. That this decision needed to be made on your own because you're in adult court now and you have to make these adult decisions on your own. Brian, you have 10 minutes to make this decision. I'm 33 years old. I have never to this day made a more difficult decision in my life, taking a deal for something I didn't do are walking into a courtroom and risking 41 years of life. So as I walked into the courtroom after that meeting, my family was in the audience box. My mom was there, and I pled no contest to one count of rape. I took the advice of my counsel, and I took the deal. Within a few weeks, uh, I turned 18 years old, and the day after my 18th birthday, I was transferred from juvenile hall to Chino State Prison. Talk about growing up. I literally had to grow up into a man on a bus ride from one area to another. So I began to serve these 90 days, and it was not easy. Uh, but during those 90 days, I was interviewed by a psychologist and a counselor, and both, uh, both women, by the way, um, read my case, listened to me, and thought that this case was ridiculous. And so they recommended what they could recommend, which was felony probation. They wished that they could do even less than that. But under the law, felony probation. So I got that favorable report. I was excited. I was happy. I remember going back to my cell, writing my mom and telling her the good news. We got that report. I should be home in less than a few days. This would be all put behind us. Let's move forward. My 90 days finished. I was transferred back to jail. Within a few days, I was back in court and back in front of a judge. And the judge walked in. He had a seat. And he sentenced me to the higher term of six years anyway. No explanation, no reasoning why I was six years. No reason or explanation why he went against the advice of the psychologist and counselor, which the whole deal was based upon. I remember receiving that sentence of six years, and when I was in that courtroom, all you heard was just the, the gasp, you know, from my mom and family members. I remember just dropping my head down, and I was so 
overwhelmed with emotion. I think I had been so overwhelmed with emotion throughout that entire year of fighting this case. And the, the variety of emotions from, from angry to upset to frustrated to stressed to everything that by the time that I had heard I had received a six-year sentence, the only thing I could do was drop my head and shake it and just laugh. I laughed. I couldn't believe that the system failed me. I couldn't believe that there was no true investigation put into what happened. And I was led out of the courtroom, taken back to the holding facility before being transferred back to jail. And I remember sitting in that holding facility trying to add up how much time I had left to serve. I had already did a year. They gave me a six-year sentence. I was to serve 85% of that time. And I remember sitting in the cell trying to add up how much time I had left to serve, but my hands were just shaking uncontrollably, and my arms and my body began to shake uncontrollably. And I just kind of had almost a nervous breakdown in the cell amongst other inmates that were waiting to be seen by the judge. And by the time I finally figured out how much time I had left to serve, I realized I had four years and two months to go. And I had just served the longest year of my life. I spent that first year or so depressed, angry, wanting revenge, and I began to live a life of an inmate. Uh, I started participating in jailhouse activities. You know, I began to slowly slip away from who I was. And one day I was, uh, I think we were on lockdown, and I was in my cell, and I'm laying on my bunk, and as I was laying on my bunk, this very bright, shining sunlight came peeking through the window of my cell. And I remember turning around and looking at this light, and this light, I guess the best way to say is this light was welcoming, right? I get off my bunk and I walk over to the window and I look out this small little slit in the wall that they call the window. And for the first time in a little over two years of my incarceration, I had this epiphany. And for the first time, I had a self-realization. I am not in control over the things that are taking place in my life. The only thing that I had control over was myself while going through this situation. I also had this epiphany that this negative energy, these emotions that I have towards the people that I feel are responsible towards the girl who made the lie, uh, they don't know how I feel. More than likely, they probably don't care how I feel. So this negative energy that I'm bottling up, that I'm storing, that I'm creating, that I'm uh, harvesting, it was for me. It wasn't for her. It wasn't for them. And I had no way of releasing it. I realized in that moment that I was tearing myself down, that I was killing myself, that I was doing the job of the people who wanted me where I was. And then I reverted back to the teachings of Mr. Johnson. I stepped away from this window and, and I, I, I vowed to myself that I, I may not be in control over what's going on in my life, but I am in control over me while going through these things. So moving forward, I will be in control of my emotions. My emotions will no longer control me. And, and so I started reading. And I, I mean, I, when I say I started reading, I. I started reading. I got into psychology and sociology and spiritual enlightenment texts. I, I read various religious texts. I worked on my penmanship because I wanted to write better. I worked on my social skills because I wanted to speak better. I literally did everything that I could to distance myself from the labels, the accusations, uh, my current environment. 
And uh, I, I worked on ways to release negative energy. I worked on ways to restore positive energy. I began to treat people in the way that I wanted to be treated. I began to put out the energy that I wanted to receive back. I stopped thinking about what happened to me. I started focusing on what was happening now. And I worked on that throughout the duration of my, 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 my prison sentence. Um, even once I was released, I was released August 29, 2007. 22 years old, I had spent my 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th, 21st, and 22nd birthday behind bars. And at 22, I got home naive as naive can be, thinking that now that I was home, everything was going to be better, when in actuality, things were in some ways a lot worse. Um, when you're in prison, you've got these tall walls and these bars and all these different things to keep you separated from the real world. You are alive, but the world passes you by. When you're home and you're on felony parole, you're a registered sex offender, you can't live within 2,000 feet of any school or park, uh, you have a GPS tracking device on your ankle for your entire uh, parole sentence. Mine was a five-year mandatory sentence. Uh, when you have all of these things, you, you realize that you're still very much incarcerated. I was naive into thinking that things would be better once I got home. And so the, the, the struggle continued, but it was a different struggle because now I could see everything, but I couldn't touch it. I could see opportunity, but I couldn't go for it. I could watch people not take opportunity when I didn't even have a chance or an opportunity to decide whether I wanted to take it or not. But I had to be resilient. I had to continue to, to put forth that effort for myself, knowing that no one will work harder for you than you. The things that I wanted in life, where I wanted to be in life, how I wanted to be viewed, how I wanted to view myself, those were all decisions that I had control over. I could control these things. Four years into my five-year parole sentence, I was at home searching for a job as always. It was impossible to find work. No one wanted to hire me. And as I was searching for a job online, I got bored and I remember uh, getting off of careerhunt.com or whatever it was and uh, I got on Facebook and I noticed I had a friend request on Facebook. I clicked the friend request, the box drops down and it is the girl who had accused me of sexually assaulting her nine years ago. Now friend requesting me on Facebook to be friends. And I remember slamming his laptop down immediately. I slammed it down, I threw it across my bed, and I, I, I just, I froze. And I had this almost like an out-of-body experience where I was just staring out of my window. And every experience, every emotion began to resurface. And I, I, I started having flashbacks and all these different things. I remember not accepting a friend request, but I sent the message back and I said, why would you friend request me? And immediately a message came back saying, well, I was hoping we can allow bygones to be bygones. I was very immature back in the day, but I can assure you I'm much more mature now. We should hang out sometime. And I immediately thought this had to be a joke. It couldn't be her. Somebody made up a fake account. Someone's trying to trick me. Some sick joke, right? So I replied back, would you mind calling this number? And immediately my phone rang and I answered the phone and it was her. And we sat in silence for a few minutes. Uh, until I broke the silence, asking again, why would your friend request me? 
And this conversation, this weird, twisted conversation began where she complimented me on my pictures on Facebook. Well, I, I, you know, I was on Facebook looking for old friends and I came across your page and you know, you've grown and you look good and you know, I'd love to see you and hang out with you. I couldn't believe it. I still didn't think it was real. I thought that she was trying to set me up. So I just didn't believe it. I remember dropping to my knees and praying to God and I asked God, I said, I don't know what's going on, but I'm hoping and, and, and asking you to help me play my cards right. And when I stood up, I felt as if God had gave me an answer on what I needed to do. I had this revelation of, you need to see if you can get her to speak the truth. Um, I had to figure out how to make that happen. And so I waited a few days and waited a few days, and eventually I got in contact with the private investigator, told him what I wanted to do. Um, I felt that if I was gonna come in contact with her, I wanted everything to be monitored, everything to be recorded, for proof as well as for my own you know, safety so that I can show that nothing happened when we came in contact with each other. I reached out to her and said, hey, if you really wanna meet, you can meet me at my job during my lunch break and we could sit and talk. And it was really a, a private investigation firm. And she agreed to it and she actually showed up. Uh, she showed up two days in a row. First day that she showed up, she and I sat together and we discussed a little bit of everything. I wanted her to understand what I had gone through what her lies caused, what my family lost, what I had to endure. The second meeting was actually with me, her, and the private investigator. And the private investigator throughout his questioning finally got to the most important questions. Did he rape you? Did he kidnap you? And she flat out said no. That if I did those things, she wouldn't be sitting next to me right then and there that we were young and curious and just having fun and then adults got involved and twisted her words up. Regardless of what she said, we had it on tape. We had the recantation on tape. I took this recantation to the California Innocence Project, which is a nonprofit student law firm clinic that works on uh, appealing cases where they feel the defendant had been uh, sent to prison for something that they didn't do. Presented my case to them, I showed them the video and they took on my case and began fighting. And as they began fighting my case, I started thinking about dreams that were deferred. I started thinking opportunity. If I get my life back, then that means I have a small window of opportunity. If I have opportunity, what am I gonna do with it? And so I started thinking before opportunity even came knocking, what am I gonna do when I get it? And the only thing that I could think of was recapturing a dream that was taken away from me, which was football. And so I said, you know, if I get my life back, well, hell, I'm gonna I'm play football. I'm gonna go back to school and you know, try to go to university and play ball. That was short-lived because when I initially paroled home from prison back in 2007, um, I went to Long Beach City College uh, and played football for one season there, which started my college tenure, uh, five-year tenure, which means that after five years, you can't play anymore. So if I was to get my life back and have everything cleared, it would have happened on my fifth year of college football. So I said, you know what? The hell with that. If I get my life back, then I'm shooting for the stars. I'm going to try out for the NFL. So I walked into a gym. I started training on a day-to-day -day basis, two, three times a day. No guarantees, no promises. Hadn't talked to a coach, hadn't talked to a recruiter. I just knew what I wanted for me. And I got into the best shape of my life. It was May 24th, 2012. I walked into a courtroom a convicted man and was exonerated 
found to be factually innocent, and which is this, it's a, actually a huge difference in court to be found factually innocent. If found innocent, it means that the courts had, they didn't have enough to convict you, but they do think that you're guilty. Uh, to be found factually innocent means that the court system agrees with your defense that you are innocent and that you should have never been incarcerated. I walked out of that courtroom a new man. I remember standing on those uh, steps in front of a sea of reporters and family and friends, and the question finally came, well, now that you're free, what's next? And I looked in the camera and said, I want to play football. I've been training for an opportunity. If there's a team out there that wants to give me a shot, I guarantee you I will outwork anybody on your team. Call me. The next day, my phone rang. Voice on the other end said, hey, I'm looking for a linebacker. You know where I can find one? And I said, well, you, you got the right number. You know, who is this? And he says, me, man, Pete Carroll. It was amazing. You know, the same coach that had recruited me back in high school. I mean, Pete Carroll used to come to, to my school campus during recruiting season and actually meet with me and talk to my teachers about grades and you know, have me come out to this university and, and, and see the team and have unofficial visits and, and whatnot. So, so here we were on the phone 10 years later, back in this recruiting dance all over again. It was magical, man. It was crazy. And he kept it real. He said, Banks, <laughs> I'm going to be real with you as I've always been. You've been on the game 10 years. You probably can't do <laughs> But, you know, I know how hard you worked back when you were younger, how uh, much of a good player you were. There's no reason why I don't, you know, I wouldn't want to give you an opportunity. He said, but are you in shape? And I remember when he asked me, was it, you know, are you in shape? I remember a smile coming over my face because I had prepared for this opportunity before it presented itself. And I said, yeah, I'm in shape. He said, good, because I'm flying you out tomorrow. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm glad I'm in shape, <laughs> you know. I made my way to the airport, hopped on a flight, went to Seattle, had a tryout. They loved what they saw. They invited me back for camp. I participated in camp, and they didn't sign me. They said, physically, you're there. Mentally, you still need some work. I went on a tryout with five other NFL teams before trying out with the Atlanta Falcons and signing with the Falcons. And I had an opportunity of playing four preseason games. I did spring ball, OTAs, and summer camp along with the four games with the Falcons before they let me go. I was a 28-year-old rookie. When those four games were over and they let me go, I was I had nothing but 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 happiness that went across my body. I had done something that no one had done before. I had done something that I thought at one point that I couldn't do. But I also did something that I said that I was gonna do. And that was to recapture a dream. I never said that I would play a Super Bowl or lead a team to victory or make a career out of football. I knew where my life was. I knew where, you know, I knew what I had gone through and 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 I was honest with myself. Um, the goal was to play, and I played. So I did what I said that I was gonna do. After I was released from the Falcons, uh, within a, uh, the season had uh, concluded, and once the season concluded, uh, they were gearing up for, uh, for the draft. And then the draft took place, and I remember when they called up the first round, uh, the, the first pick of the first round, uh, Roger Goodell walked up on the stage, and I was sitting at home watching him drive, and I I said, man, he got a nice suit on. I remember thinking to myself, he got on a nice suit. You said, you know what, I'm going to text him and tell him, you know, he got a nice suit on. So I had his number. I texted him. I said, man, nice suit, RG. Man, you're looking good. Congrats on another draft. And he texted me back. He said, you know what, thank you. Um, I actually been thinking about you. I got something in mind I want to talk to you about within a couple of days if you're up to it. Um, 
And eventually we spoke. He wanted me to come speak at the Rookie Symposium, one of the last ones that they were holding when they had all the teams together. So I did the Rookie Symposium. Uh, I, had a, I did a panel discussion. And then after the panel discussion, I did a bunch of breakout sessions with individual teams. And it went off really well, so much so that word got back to RG, Roger. And he uh, gave me a call and said, man, I want to offer you a position at the front office here in New York, if you're interested. You know, what you did at the symposium is exactly what we want in our office. He said, if you like, come on out, let's give you a tour. I said, I don't need a tour. <laughs> let's do it. You know, so we, uh, we mapped it all out, we planned it all out, and they got me out there. I had an opportunity to work with the, uh, the league's front office for two years. After those two years, I went on to become a certified life coach, a nationally recognized motivational speaker. I had an opportunity to do the USO tour and travel outside the country sharing my story. I went on to host my first TV show called Final Appeal on Oxygen, which was a show uh, about uh, investigating other cases where people claimed to have been wrongfully convicted of crimes they didn't commit. Uh, and now here I am today uh, with a uh, full-length feature film that's going to be released August 9th this year nationwide, and it's going to depict my story for the world to see, for the world to learn from. The, the contrast, the, the before and after, uh, is insane. To have been stripped of everything uh, you know to be true, to, to fight not to lose all that you know, and to just want to have a normal life, but surpass that and go on to actually being able to help people, teach people, and give people hope and courage about their own experiences that they're going through in their life, I could say that on either side, it was unexpected. But I think that that's what life is. I think life is so much of the unexpected than it is the expected. It wasn't what I was going through. It was how I was allowing it to affect me. So it's, it's been a crazy road, man. It's been a crazy ordeal. It's been a wild experience. It's something that I wouldn't wish upon no one. I thank God that I made it through, that I'm here today that I'm able to share this story for other people who have gone through similar situations that are currently going through a similar situation or for the person who is grieving in a totally different situation that they don't know how to move past. I'm one of those guys that can look at you and tell you it's not what you're going through, but it's how you're allowing it to affect you. That is what's hurting you. Like I said in the beginning, I, I try to live a positive life despite the negative things that I've experienced. I try to give out what I would like to receive. I treat people the way I want to be treated. And I fight for truth. So instead of allowing this negative situation to hold me back and to put me under a rock as a hermit and hide from the world, it's given me the power and tools necessary to go out and help the next man. This has been the NFL Legends Podcast. To provide feedback or request a topic for discussion, email us at nfllegends at nfl.com. You go into your shower feeling tired, but as soon as you reach for the Irish Spring, your day immediately gets better. That crisp, fresh, unmistakable Irish Spring scent zings your brain and awakens your senses. So when you finally emerge from the shower 37 minutes later because you pay the water bill so you can stay in there as long as you want, you're ready to take on the day and smell great doing it. 
Irish Spring Body Wash and Bar Soap. Fresh, green, Irish. Shop now at a store near you.